Uh, we're in this series uh, titled Unfailing Love, and we're focused on the minor prophets. And last week we examined the story of Hosea and Gomer in which book? Hosea, right? <laughs> like, uh, yes. Uh, today we're in the book of Joel. Joel. And in Hebrew, Joel means Yahweh is God. And so uh, he, his book comes later in the Old Testament. But as we've been talking about is that uh, the reason for these minor prophets being so late is that there's a thematic approach um, to the Bible. So you might have the book of the major prophets, the, the minor prophets, um, the, um, the, the, uh, the poets. So all these things you find in there. And so it's not because of anything less significant. It's just the book of Joel is one of the 12 minor prophets. Now, Joel lived and prophesied after Solomon, but before the exile. So before uh, the Israelites were taken captive, that's when he's prophesying. And so Israel is living in idolatry. And so Joel, he writes to diagnose the problem. Um, so he sees something. And this is why he's writing. So he's writing again before they're taken captive. And so I'm going to invite Ivan to read our text. Um, oh, okay. This is the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awaken, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, and all the inhabitants. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't want to read all seven to three verses. So, in the book of Joel, so we did focus to chapter one just now. Now, how many of you guys were actually listening like intensely, or at least following along with what was happening? Uh, some weird stuff going on, right? We'll we'll, we'll, we'll get there, <laughs> but. Now, here's how I'm going to start. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of participating in a panel discussion. And one of the guests said something that kind of caught me off guard. 
Have you ever been somewhere and something just catches you off guard and you're like, okay, that ever happened to you before? Yeah, yeah, caught me off guard. Uh, but out of respect for the invitation that was extended to me, I, you know, I composed myself, trying not to say anything. And I tried, you know, for me, I never try to say things uh, out of any kind of like personal, emotional things, but when I'm teaching, wherever the Bible takes me, that's where I go with it. And so today happened to be one of those days where I'm going to mention one of these things, but the guest panelists said that they don't refer to the Old Testament when sharing the gospel. Um, they suggested that the Old Testament didn't carry much weight since salvation exists through the Gospels. And it is true that salvation um, is, is there for us, uh, but that's a flawed reasoning. They, so let's use this analogy. The speed limit for driving in various school zones in California is, is what? You guys know? 25 miles, oh, you guys actually read the book. <laughs> 25 miles per hour. Now, whether or not you drive a vehicle or you care to know, the speed limit exists and there's a consequence for exceeding that speed limit. This speeding law creates accountability for the safety of the children. Now, wherever we live in this state, doesn't matter where we live, our accountability for the safety of the children, it alters how we drive the moment we enter a school zone and we see those lights flashing. Now, there is this, uh, and so when we see someone driving 70 miles per hour in a school zone when those lights are flashing, we automatically think, are you crazy? Are you stupid? Are you an idiot? And maybe, maybe you guys have other words, but that's what I would you know, think in my mind. But although speeding is a legal infraction, we're not thinking about the person that's driving and the ticket that might get. We're thinking that driving 70, 70 miles per hour in a school zone puts the safety of children at risk. Will you agree? Okay. In other words, our concern for the children becomes greater than the law that keeps us accountable. Sin disrupts our relationship with God. It's a legal infraction that breaches God's righteousness. The purpose of the Old Testament laws is to hold us accountable to God's standards. At the same time, it draws us closer to him through our obedience. When our relationship with God deepens, our focus shifts from restrictions to relational intimacy. I'll say it again. When our relationship with God deepens, the closer we get to God, our focus shifts from restrictions to relational intimacy. Driving 25 miles per hour in a school zone won't feel like a restriction if your focus is on the safety of the children. Likewise, obeying the laws of God won't feel like restrictions if your focus is on developing intimacy with God. 
Now let's look at the foundation of the Old Testament laws. In Jewish tradition, mizvah refers to the commandments or laws given by God in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You guys know those? Let's set them together. Genesis, Deuteronomy 5, right. Yes, mitzvah is the plural form of the Hebrew word mitzvah, which translates to commandment or good deed. Now here's where Christianity might seem unfair to many people, or the reason why people would say, let's not focus so much on the Old Testament. Traditionally, there are 613 Jewish laws. 248 of those laws were positive, such as honoring our parents or keeping the Sabbath day holy. 365 were negative ones, such as not stealing or avoiding idolatry. Now, even if you don't know all 613 laws, they still exist, and there are consequences for breaking each one of them. Now, we would argue that memorizing all 613 would seem excessive or difficult to remember. Would you agree? Yes? Well, as of May 2022, California had 60,576 different laws. Now, even if we don't know all these laws, they exist and there are consequences for breaking each one of them. Even without knowing all these laws, most days we live comfortably in this state. I never hear people saying, man, I hate law number 59,326. I mean, I never hear that. We just live life and just go along the line because we're not so much worried about those because if we just try to be a good citizen, we figure more or less we're going to be obeying most laws. And yet we become dismissive of the Old Testament because we believe that Jesus came to get rid of the laws to make our lives easier. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Pause for a moment. Notice what it says. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. And then it says, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Verse 19, so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I see how important these laws are, even if we don't know what it is. But Jesus himself says, don't touch the law, don't think it's unimportant, because I didn't come to replace the law. I came to fulfill the purpose of the law. So even if we don't like the different laws that we have, getting a new governor won't change it. You might even get some more laws. 
there are certain laws that just won't change. The speeding limit is going to sit right there because it's all about the safety of the children. So if the laws exist in the Old Testament, why would God send Jesus to replace the very mechanism designed to uphold his righteousness? That'd be ludicrous, right? Like that commercial. Jesus validates the importance of the law and the Old Testament. Now, some would argue, well, didn't Christ die on the cross and rose from the dead? Why would we still need the law? I'm glad you asked. 2 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21. Peter is writing here. He says, we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountains. Pause for a moment again. This mountain he's talking about is, remember, the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, John, and Jesus were on top of the mountain, and they saw this glorious light come. And when they saw Moses and, and Christ was talking, they're like, hey, let's create this temple here, you know, one for, the, for these prophets and one for you. And he said, no, slow down. So that's what he's referencing. Look at verse 19. Because of that experience, that experience on the mount, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So this writing took place after Christ had already died, rose from the dead, and is in heaven. And so why would Peter now turn around and say, this is so important if we didn't need the law when Christ is already back in heaven? He's back in heaven with his father, chilling, just looking over us, making intercession. That's what's going on. So there's no way we need to remove the law. So when we teach the Old Testament, it's not less important to, for our faith. The prophets are helping us understand that every decision we make has an impending consequence. So Jesus came to create a pathway to reconcile us with God, not to rid us from thinking about these things. So thou shalt not kill in the Old Testament is still don't kill in the New Testament. It's just that when you talk about loving your, your, your neighbor as yourself, if you love your neighbor, you're not looking through and saying, is this law important? Oh, no, no. If you love your neighbor, you're not thinking about deception, not thinking about killing and stealing because you love your neighbor. It's the same instance when you're driving a certain pace. It's that the care for people overrides the thought to look for a checklist. And so what we often do is we look through and saying, since you know, Christ came, we don't need this checklist anymore. Now, Christ came to help us to realize that if we have love for everyone, we don't need this checklist anymore. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. So, so what God does through his prophets is to send a warning that if we don't serve him, there will always be some form of destruction. And that is still true today. There are certain things that will happen because we're not serving God how we should. But in the same breath, God always provides an opportunity for reconciliation. 
So we must shift from restrictions to relational intimacy. Now, just as the Old Testament provides fundamental insights into God's unfailing love, Joel's message adds another layer to this divine narrative. And you guys are trying to figure out, where am I going with this? Because I want you to see that Joel is writing before all the destruction took place with the Israelites. So let's go back to verse 4. It says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, the next segment uh, might be a little creepy for those who don't like insects. And so I've already spoken to you know, the guys and said, hey, Jess, let me set it up. So you know, nothing outrageous, but just in case you don't like insects, just bear with me for the next few slides. Any guys, any guys hate insects? Just don't like insects? Oh, see some hands going up. Oh, good boy. <laughs> but locusts are about three inches long, and they look like grasshoppers. See, not too bad. Now, there have been several locust plagues throughout history. In 1874, there was a locust plague that started in the Rocky Mountains, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, and parts of the Dakotas, North and South Dakota. That plague covered two million square miles. Now, do you guys know how many square miles are in the US? 3.8 million, which means those locusts covered more than half the, the radius of the, of the US in 1874. Now, in 1915, there was a locust plague in Jerusalem. Now, here's a tree that was depicted before the locust plague took place. Ready? See, that's, that, that was a tree before the locust took place. Now, here's the tree after the locusts. Now, people saw swarms of locusts in the sky, and uh, this is what a locust plague looks like in the sky. Next slide. Now, that's not a pixelated picture. That's literally what the locust looks like coming in the sky. Uh, they flew down from the northeast in the clouds, and they were so thick that they blocked the sun. It, it, was, it, was, they, it looked like just darkness. That's what took place. So now these locusts, they began to dig holes in the soil that looks like this. Those little patches right there. These holes were four inches deep and a half inch wide. And they dropped more than 100 eggs in each hole. So here's a picture of a locust de depositing eggs inside a hole. Now, these eggs were neatly formed in the ground. You guys ever seen a bunch of bananas just all stacked up? <laughs> Looks like this. Now, about 70,000 eggs were deposited in a single square yard of soil. And these patches covered the ground for miles and miles. Within a few weeks, these young locusts would hatch. Now, when they're hatched, they don't have wings as yet, so they hopped around like a grasshopper. See that? No wings, just a little bit hopping around. You know, they can't go too far. This beautiful 
creature covered four to 600 feet daily, but they consumed all the vegetation in its path. Understand when I said these creatures, four to 600 feet daily. It means that it take about eight locusts to cover one mile in a day, just eight. But as they grew, they developed the ability to jump. Their range got higher. So before, they're just jumping around like little critters. And now they start jumping, and they're jumping on trees and vines, and they're eating those leaves. A few weeks later, they develop wings, and they swarm over uh, the radius they had just devoured. Remember what I said earlier now. Now, in Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem only has about 48,000 square miles. Remember I mentioned earlier that more than 70,000 eggs were patched in just a small radius. So you had more locusts than the square miles of Jerusalem altogether in that time. There were literally hundreds of thousands of locusts that took place. And now, this is an unpopular. Locusts ha happen all the time. There's always a plague happening. But I'm getting to a point. Stay with me for a, for a moment. So now that these locusts can fly, what they did was they look around and say, oh, when we're hopping around, we missed something. So they literally would go back and they'd, and they'd literally start eating everything that they'd missed. They, they went to the point where they even ate the bark off the trees. So they literally left everything desolate. When they got desperate for food, the locusts would just go into homes through windows and doors and that they would eat all the food, the clothes, the fabric, and even the wood. They're eating everything inside and outside the home. So Joe's vivid imagery of locusts is a powerful metaphor for the devastating effects of sin and Israel's impending judgment. Just as the locusts devoured everything in their path, Sin corrupts our spiritual lives, leaving behind desolation and despair. So Joel gave this locust imagery, and now he's going to tell you exactly what it looks like in Joel chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is a spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns, a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Look at this now. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, 
Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on its way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in its path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the, wilderness, the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdrew their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Notice how Joel starts to give you this idea of the locusts and all the things that locusts would do. And then you're like, oh, I understand what locusts would do. All this creepy, crazy thing. And then he says, this is actually the true people. And that's exactly what, what Babylon did. They went in and destroyed everything, took the people away. So like the locust plague, the devastating power of sin is total destruction, gradually destroying everything in its past. So we know this to be true because we know the story of the Babylonians capturing Israel and destroying everything in sight. The laws of God give life. His commandments and rules in our lives lead to our flourishing. And we see this illustrated with the story of creation. When God created the earth, it began as a dark, shapeless, chaotic scene. And Genesis 1 tells us that God spoke life, beauty, and, other, and put order into chaos. Sin, by contrast, unravels creation and moves our lives back into darkness. So the locust plagues we can say it is a systematic reversal of creation. And not just to demonstrate the power, but to illustrate what rebellion does to our lives. The more we yield our lives to these sinful desires, the more sin numbs us until it destroys our lives. I mean, think about someone who struggles with sin. Uh, they have this temporal gratification. But that seed of bad habit, it slowly affects their spiritual growth. Joel's prophecy about locusts warned of God's coming judgment, which would be worse than even the locusts. Joel says, unless Israel wakes up, God is going to send the armies of Babylon into Israel like a horde of locusts. What I'm describing to you is what theologians call the passive and active dimensions of God's wrath and their interconnectedness. The passive wrath of God refers to the consequences or natural outcomes of human disobedience and sinfulness. I know they have a slide coming up, we'll talk, so I know I just said a mouthful. So it refers to the consequences or natural outcomes of human disobedience and sinfulness. In other words, we could say that God allows us to experience the natural consequences of sin. For example, there can be natural consequences that come with premarital sex, drunk driving, dishonesty, addiction. All these behaviors have natural consequences that have nothing to do with God's direct response. You drink, 
get drunk and you're driving, the potential for an accident, and you have a tragic one. That's just a natural consequence. Because God respects the freedom of humanity, so he allows us to make choices, and we experience the consequences of those choices, good or bad. God allows us. There's freedom. That's the passive wrath of God. There's a consequence for sin, but having Jesus, he can remove the sin so that we are blameless before God. So Israel was falling into idolatry, and, and Joel was, was diagnosing this problem. Then we have the active wrath of God. The active wrath of God refers to God's direct intervention or punishment in response to human sinfulness, disobedience. So these are the moments when God responds directly to our sins and does exactly what he said he would do. We see the examples of, of the, the flood in the story of Noah's Ark. We see the 10 plagues of Egypt, uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the exile of Israel. So all these things are things that we see that God responded. And when we think of all these destructions, it's easy for us to suggest that God is unjust or he's evil. And so we craft these theological questions. Why does a just God allow evil to exist? Or how can we make sense of existence, of suffering and pain in the world? Here's the reality. God is not destructive. Sin is destructive. For example, give a natural one so you can understand. Everyone who received, the key, received keys to this facility agreed not to lend those keys out. It's something that we went through with the landlord. That's our agreement. Now, the average person in this room is trustworthy. But lending you the keys or making unauthorized copies of the keys has nothing to do with trusting you. It's about the agreement that was made with our landlord. You guys with me so far? Okay. If a person continues to lend out the keys without approval, it becomes my responsibility to take the keys because it shows disregard for the agreement. Now, someone might say, well, Pastor Garfield, you're just being controlling. And yet, it was your actions that caused me to respond. Now, we're not having this problem here, right? Just in case you're wondering, like, who's lending out the keys? Now, we're not having a problem here. I'm simply making the point. The point in that there, there are things that we, we do as leaders in the church that might seem unpopular, and sometimes it might bruise our egos a little bit, but we have to do it. And that's why we always have signs and saying, sign this, read this, because it allows us to hold people accountable. You know, that's what God does to us. God gives us his word and say, here's my word, and everything in this, in this word, I want you to follow it. And when you don't follow it, I'm going to hold you accountable. God says, read it. I want you to live this way. And if you don't do what it says, there are consequences for your actions. It's tempting to blame God because we're experiencing uh, different consequences in our, in our lives because of our actions. But God's just responding to our breach of agreement. That's all he's doing. And so when you do something that God says, for example, in Malachi, when he talks about, you know, 
generosity and giving and tithes and everything. What it says in there, you don't give, your barn's going to be empty. I'm going to send the devourer to take it all away. So what happens? You get money, and you're like, where did it go? Like, did you give to God's work? No. <laughs> well, that's where it went. The devourer came in. And just the same thing, with there are these natural consequences. You commit a crime, something's going to happen. So God's saying there are these natural consequences that exist. It has nothing to do with what I'm doing except the fact that you're breaching our contract. There's a certain way you ought to live as a Christian. And so, so God is saying, stop doing whatever you're doing before it's too late. That's what was happening in, in Joel's book. So here's the Old Testament principle. Joel says, when you're experiencing the consequences of sin, you still have an opportunity to return to God. Verses 12 to 13 says, that is why the Lord says, Joel 2, 12 to 13, that's why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he's merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not punish. Regardless of how far you are in your sinful path, God says you can still repent. So Joel extends God's invitation to repentance. His message reverberates with God's boundless mercy and compassion, reminding us that it doesn't matter how far we've strayed, there's always a path back to God's unfailing love. And when you realize that God loves you despite your mistakes, it produces uh, a love for God like never before. And here's what God responds in verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Now, this is a rhetorical question because verse 12 tells us that God is speaking. But look at what God promises when we return. In verse 14, turn and, re and relent, that's the mercy of God. Leave a blessing, that's the grace of God. Here's what God wants us to understand in all the Old Testament writings. Mercy withholds God's wrath, and grace pours out his goodness. Let me give you an analogy so you can stew on that for a little bit. If I catch you breaking into my car, but I don't call the police, that's mercy, because I'm withholding the penalty you deserve. Now, if I recognize that you're in need, and I give you some money after catching you breaking into my car, that's grace. So I'm withholding the penalty that you deserve by, by not calling the police, and I'm pouring out goodness on you because you don't deserve it. I'm giving you the money that you don't deserve. What you really deserve is me calling the police so they can take you away. So God did not simply send Jesus to shield us from his wrath. And he didn't just send him to replace the law and, and call everything grace. 
His coming was about reconciliation. Through Joel's prophecy, we witness God's unwavering commitment to his people as he promises to renew and rebuild what sin had destroyed. God intends to return a blessing for our decision to serve him. Now, I'm not referring to just eternal life. Okay, so often we talk about you know, church and Christianity. All we think about is like, you know, it's just about heaven. And so we try to dismiss, but you have to read the full picture. This is why I say you have to look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because here's what it says in Joel 2, verses 18 to 20 and 23 to 26. Then the Lord will pity his people and jealously guard the honor of his land. The Lord will reply, look, I am sending you grain and new wine and olive oil enough to satisfy your needs. You will no longer be an object of mockery among the surrounding nations. I will drive away these armies from the, the north. I will send them into the parched wastelands. Those in the front will be driven into the Dead Sea and those at the rear into the Mediterranean. The stench of their rotten bodies will rise over the land. Surely the Lord has done great things. 23, rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for the rain he sends demonstrates his faithfulness. Once more the autumn rains will come, as well as the rains of spring. The threshing floors will again be piled high with grain, and the presses will overflow with new wine and olive oil. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the cutting locusts, it was I who sent this great destroying armies against you. Once again, you will have all the food you want, and you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. So Joel was saying, if you don't serve God, here are these consequences. You're going to lose everything. But if you return to God, God says, I'm going to give you these things. So verse 25 gives us this retroactive restoration. God says that if you return to him, it will give you back everything that sin destroyed in your life. This is why we need the Old Testament. The full story is not that we receive forgiveness and go to heaven. That's part of the story. God says he wants to restore the things sin took from your life. Some things we'll experience on earth and others in heaven. But knowing that all is not lost should be a comforting feeling. The question I have for you is, what has sin destroyed in your life? See, there are consequences for our sins. But what has sin destroyed in your life? God says, return to me and I'll restore the years you've lost. And so oftentimes we, we sit there and we're just saying, am I doing the right thing? God, you know, I'm serving you. And God said, yeah, yes, you asked for forgiveness of sins. I'm going to forgive you. But if you don't know that God intends to do more than just forgiving you, then you're going to sit there and just keep wondering, is it wrong for me to have these things in my life? And God says, yes, because sin took these things away. And so now I'm giving it back to you because you, you came back to me. And so your life is not over because you have sinned. 
Although sin ripped apart your family, broken relationships can be mended. Simply return to God. We live in the comfort of the New Testament and miss that God wants to do so much more in our lives. Heaven is great. But why do you believe that God keeps having the writers to say, as it is in, on earth and in heaven? Because it's, we, we live on earth. So God knows the things that we need to live on this earth. So God's not going to have you just live, you know, and just like, oh, man, nothing goes right here. I can't wait till I get to heaven. And, and God is saying, but you don't have to wait to get to heaven for everything. There are things that I can do in your life right now. Just return to me and serve me. Because when, when, when you return to God, he also wants you to tell others. Sharing the gospel is not about theological depth. Because what's the instruction that we see in Joel 1 verse 3? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Who do you think we are? We're on this other generation. God didn't give an end date in this. God says just keep telling people. What are we supposed to tell people? We're telling them that our lives we're headed down a destructive path, and we decided to serve Jesus, and he took away our sins and the consequences that was attached to those sins. And then he restored what sin destroyed. So are you telling your friends that Jesus rescued you from self-destruction? We receive both grace and mercy. Mercy refers to God's compassion and forgiveness, toward those you know, who deserve punishment. We deserve the consequences. But God sent his son. And because of him, we can have life. That's the reason why it says not just life, but life to the full. Our spiritual lives is only a part of our life. Yes, we need each other. Yes, we need the spirit of God. But we also need to enjoy life. It's okay to go to the movies. All right? But you're like, no, I'm not going to go to the movies. It's okay to go to the movies. You know, I'm going to invite the rest of you to come forward. Uh, Peter Chung, can I, can, can, I, can I tell on you what you did yesterday? <laughs> no, I, I, you, you guys can come forward as a worship team. But the reason I brought it up is because, because he was telling me how he's going to go to a, a food truck. You know, and I was like, you're going to get some nice steak or something. I know he's always trying to grill. So, so now, just going to have chairs and just sit there and just eat food from a food, from a food truck. And it's, it's okay to do those things. It's okay to go and, and listen to some jazz music. Go to the symphony. Go listen to some orchestra, something. Do something with your life. Stop being so boring. Because that's what God wants. Listen, if you recognize sin in your life and you say, God, I'm asking you to forgive me for my sins. I promise you he forgive you for your sins. Why? Because his word said so. That's what his word says. Confess what? Confess Jesus, right? That he's Lord. 
Once you confess your sins and asking him to forgive you, there goes that. You're now a Christian. It never said that you have to do all these different things because if you believe that you're going to save yourself, then you're removing the work that Christ did on the cross. What Jesus wants is for you to say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. He says, yes, I forgive you. There he goes. He's like, yes, I was on the cross. I took these nails because that's the work he's doing. So salvation is not your work. It's Christ's work, which he's already done for you. All you need to do is to say, Lord, forgive me for my sins and trust that the Holy Spirit will guide you along the journey. And all of us here, we walk this journey together. That's what it's all about. It's not about you saying, oh, now that I'm a Christian, I have to read five chapters a day. And do this. No, 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 that's not what it's about. Okay? And so I want to pray for us. But here's what I want us to pray for us. Let me get these things out of the way. I want you to take a moment and commit specific action steps to align your life more closely with God. It's easy for us to say, oh, God, just help me. Yeah, okay, yeah. What are you going to do that's practical to align your life with God? Yes, it could involve praying more. It could also involve reading the Word. But it also could involve, you know, sharing Christ's love with a friend. Maybe sharing a meal with a friend. Maybe there's this person that you see that always look like they have no friends around. Invite them and go out somewhere. It's okay. Be friendly to others. Because God wants us to live the full. Sometimes people don't come to church or, or become Christians because they see how we live. Like our face looks so sad and dry. And they're like, if that's what serving Jesus is all about, I, I don't want that. But if you can allow Christ to live his fullness through you, having a smile on your face, living with joy, the others would say, why are you so joyful? Because I'm allowing my life to express the fullness of God. Not just the spiritual thing, but the fullness of God. So I want to think about what can you do? What specific action can you do to really align your life with the fullness of God? And for those of you who have not yet made the decision to follow Jesus, it's really simple as I mentioned before. All you have to do is ask Christ into your heart. Just to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Save me. And once you've made that decision, I promise you according to God's word that you are a believer. And yes, there are things we will do to, to, to grow our faith, but all you need to do is to confess your sins and Christ will forgive you. So Father, I pray uh, for the one that has yet to make the decision to follow you. I pray that you'll touch their hearts even now. Help them to realize that you are a loving God and you, and you decide and you choose to um, to send your son to die on the cross and because of the work on the cross, the finished work on the cross, now we have forgiveness of sins. But I also pray that for all of us, maybe we've been struggling trying to find joy in the simple things in life because we've made uh, Christianity become so, uh, I don't know, maybe so rigid and you're wanting for us to live freely. And maybe we are living too freely and haven't made you a priority. I pray God that we'll have balance in our life to enjoy life to the fullest according to your word. So move in our hearts. Love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.